Good morning, everybody. My name is Ben, and it's good to be here with you. Uh, it's really good. It's, there's something profound about a bunch of small children. It's profoundly difficult sometimes, <laughs> for sure, <laughs> but uh, profoundly beautiful. And I would invite you this morning as we sort of shift gears and, and begin to enter into God's Word to think about that miracle of life. Uh, think about the ways that our world would describe having babies, the categories that our world would sort of attach to uh, babies being born. And I think right away you can see how the world's description of what's going on might be limited. It might stop shy of actually accurately assessing what's happening when a baby comes into this world. It is truly a miracle, and I would say each of you, and I've used this language often, each of you are miracles. Every breath that you take is a miracle. I stand here and look at faces, and I see the glory of God shining through. Sometimes we don't think of ourselves that way. Sometimes we don't think of having children that way. We think about it in different terms. So I invite you to think about that, and we're going to enter into a very profound passage this morning, so I'd like to pray with you. Your bulletins have the first two lines of the prayer, and I'd like you to pray it with me as I do. This comes from St. Maximus the Confessor. He is one of my favorite old-time theologians, probably wrote it in the mid-600s A.D. We'll read the two lines together in prayer, and then I'll continue on after that, and that'll be how we begin this morning, okay? So if you could, pray with me. Come, word of God, worthy of all praise, grant us proportionately the revelation of your own words, removing altogether the thickness of any shrouds. Christ, the beauty of spiritual meanings. Show us, Jesus, the beauty of spiritual meanings. Father, have mercy upon our community here in Portland this morning, because we as sinners are often blind and deaf and hard-hearted, and we desperately need you. Jesus, thank you for creating us with hearts and minds and souls that can reflect the uncreated light of your beauty. We want to shine like you. And Holy Spirit, your voice is faint in our broken ears. We are so prone to wander and so saturated with fear and anxiety that come from the disfigurement of this world. We come to this space infected with cynicism, suffering under our own unbelief, proud of our own know-how and confident in ourselves, closed off to those around us, and worse, to you. We're closed off to you so often. We confess that we often sit here in this room with wandering minds and volatile hearts, seeking anything but you. We ourselves are disfigured. Please help us, Holy Spirit, to see even the faintest glimpse of your glory this morning, the uncreated light of your divinity. Amen. Friends, you and I must become open this morning. It can be an ambiguous way to talk, but I think often we're far more closed off than we recognize. We have to prepare to gaze upon something 
that is very profound, very difficult to know. One of my, uh, one of my teachers, as I've been growing up in the faith, he once talked about evangelism this way, and he said, sometimes we wrongly, or maybe it's not wrongly, but one way to look at evangelism is this sort of, I have something super awesome, like let's say a cake, and what I'm going to do with this awesome thing that I have and that you don't have is I'm going to cut pieces of the cake off and then give them to you. So evangelism is about me taking the good, valuable thing I have and then giving pieces of it to you. This teacher said, I'd like to challenge that notion and suggest something different. He said, you can load up buses with the most hardened criminals, little children, bankers, neighbors of any shape, size, ethnicity, whatever. Any kind of background, you can take them out to Cannon Beach on one of those beautiful sunsets and all of them will stand in awe. What if evangelism was more like us standing shoulder to shoulder with our fellow man or woman and, and gazing upon the sunset together where we can actually reflect on the beauty that both would recognize? I don't know, again, that one is right or wrong as much as that's another way to look at it, and that's what I'd like to do this morning with you. I want to stand shoulder to shoulder with you and gaze upon something that we would be remiss to think we will know. The best we can do this morning is try to know. Try to know what is happening before our eyes. We are going to see, in Mark chapter 9, a massive outpouring of grace. And you and I are not wired to comprehend grace very well. We have to confess that we are not very comfortable with free gifts. We, we like them in so many ways. But when it comes right down to it, it, free gifts, God's grace, it doesn't really compute for us. Just this week, a faithful Christian named Richard Rohr posted a, a blog, and in it he said this, and I think it, it so captures what I want to say here. He said, God's freely given grace, and I believe that's what we will see in this transfiguration moment we're about to read. God's freely given grace is a humiliation to the ego because free gifts say nothing about being strong, superior, or moral. Thus, only the soul can understand grace, never the mind or the ego. The ego does not know how to receive things freely or without logic. It likes to be worthy, and it needs to understand to accept things as true. May our souls, then, overpower our ego and our reason this morning. May our souls overpower our ego and our reason with a spiritual yearning for Jesus right now as we approach this holy mountain. Please turn with me to Mark chapter 9. The scene we're going to look at happens right after Jesus has taken his disciples up to a place called Caesarea Philippi. There in the context of much idolatry, Jesus says to his disciples, who do you say I am? Peter rightly calls him the Messiah, but as we have looked at in this preaching series, we've looked at how Peter's understanding of Messiah was distorted. 
He didn't understand a Messiah that would have to suffer. He only saw a progression of growth toward better and better, and the Messiah would bring it. So Jesus has told him, we're going to have to reframe that. In less words, he said, stop talking about me that way. And then he said, the son of man, or the human one, me, Jesus says, I'm going to go and die and suffer. You can imagine the feelings that Peter and his, and his fellow disciples had in that moment. How is our hero and our savior going to suffer and die? This is insane. So it's right in the context of that fear and that depression and that anxiety and that deep sadness that we come to this text this morning. We'll open with Mark 9, verse 1. I'd like to say something about that before we continue. Mark 9, verse 1. And Jesus said to them, his disciples in front of him, Truly I tell you that some who are standing here will not taste death before they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. Some of you guys standing right here in my midst, Jesus says, are going to see the kingdom of God come with power. And last week, I argued that that one angle to understand that statement from is the widespread explosion of Christianity. It was like a spark in a gunpowder factory. It blew up all through the Mediterranean and Middle Eastern world in, in less than 30 years. And so it was very reasonable for Jesus to say, you are going to see a massive expansion, a powerful inbreaking of the kingdom in your lifetime. And I think that's one angle to see it from. I, I open with the same verse this morning because I think Mark, Mark is hinging our attention. And now the transfiguration moment comes right after it. And I think that's another way that this verse is fulfilled. You're going to see the inbreaking of the kingdom. And then this is what happens next. Mark 9, verse 2. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. And there he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could have bleached them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses who were talking with Jesus. It was amazing. He transfigured before them. Mark's gospel story is shorter than the other ones. Luke records this same scene and he doesn't just talk about the clothing or the garments becoming brilliantly bright. Luke also records that right from Jesus' face, the brightest possible light starts beaming. It's amazing. And this language that you see, whiter than anybody could have bleached them, it's a great example of a first century mind trying to make some sense, trying to put some language to what is being witnessed here. His intent is not to have you grapple with, gosh, I wonder if modern bleach like Clorox could have actually hit that mark, you know. It's not that. Notice he didn't say, here's exactly how white it was. He said it was even whiter than the most brilliant thing you can possibly imagine. 
which would have been what he describes in his day. This is a light like none other. Like none other. There's no way to put it into words. What is the nature of God's glory? Is it the kind of light that we see here? Uncreated light of divinity piercing through the darkness of this world? Is it beauty? Do we see God's glory in beauty, aesthetic beauty? What about goodness? Is God's glory most revealed in ethical goodness? Is it the essence and the miracle of life itself? Did we just see five, more than five, five families with babies and children all shining with the glory of God and his miracle of giving life? I think that we're unwise to think that we have comprehended God's glory. I remember in my studies, I learned about a tradition in the Jewish history where a a young boy walks into synagogue and he reads the first chapter of Ezekiel. And if you've ever read that, you might know where this is going. There's wheels with eyeballs and wings everywhere and gold and it's God's presence. And it said the tradition holds that when when the young boy read the first chapter of Ezekiel, he, he burst into flames and was consumed with fire. And therefore, you weren't allowed to read chapter one until you were at least 30. <laughs> you know, it was part of one segmented tradition, but it was there. There was this sense of trying to comprehend the glory of God and what it entails is something that's exceedingly difficult for us. We have to be very careful then to not come up with terse summarized definitions of God's glory and think that we get it. We must approach humbly and hope for the grace of a mere glimpse. True beauty like this is unfathomable, and that's why I say we need to be open this morning. Humbly recognizing that you are only just beginning, just beginning to understand and see the glory of God in your entire lifetime here before death. We're just getting a glimpse. When you embrace the foolishness of thinking that you understand God's glory, you close yourself off. You stop desiring God and then start desiring things that aren't God, that are more exciting, new releases that are better, more intelligible. You may start to turn toward God's either inside yourself or in this world. God's glory is something to fall into and be forever amazed by. When you close yourself off to God, thinking you've sort of figured him out, you become more and more fearful of God. Isn't that interesting? The one who has God all figured out is actually more terrified of him terrified of him than anybody else. Grace, I think, is one of the major things we miss. It's so hard to grasp. Let's go back to the story, verses five and six. This continues to get more intense. Peter said to Jesus, "Uh, Rabbi, uh, it's good for us to be here. Yeah, it's good. It's good. It's it's good. It's good for us to be here. Uh, let's put up, let's put up three shelters. That's it. Let's put up three shelters: one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Huh? 
Mark in verse 6 gives us a little editorial comment. He says, Peter didn't know what to say. They didn't know what to say. They were so frightened. They were terrified. That's amazing, you know. Peter's sitting there. He's looking at just Jesus, beaming white. Moses and Elijah on both sides. And he's like, <gasps> and he's, he's freaking out. And then he just starts babbling, you know. Well, I don't know what to do. Once again, I think Mark is setting Peter before us not to give us a newspaper sort of report about what happened then. Mark's not a stenographer just recording history for us. He's writing a piece of divinely inspired literature that's meant to smack us. And here again, Peter's example set before us raises the question for you and me, which is, am I a disciple like Peter? Am I one of the disciples like him? Am I in that same mindset? The story of Mark's gospel is supposed to wake us up, jolt us out of slumber, cause us to sink deeply in wonder. And I do. I hope you do as well. You sit there and you look at Peter and you say, man, am I in this same boat? Would I start babbling and fall to the ground and freak out and not know what to do in the presence of Jesus? Jesus for real. You see, Jesus has never revealed himself to the disciples as much so far as he is in this moment. And every time Jesus kind of pulls the curtain back a little bit further for his disciples to see, they freak out again, don't we? Right when they're kind of like, yeah, I kind of get it. We're good with you. Then Jesus is like, I'm going to have to suffer. Like, whoa, what? And start freaking out. And then they start to get it a little bit. And then he's glowing white. And he's good. He just, you can't handle it. Am I being like Peter? Peter continues to misunderstand Jesus when he could by now understand more. He could by now understand that Jesus probably needs a throne to be built more than a shelter. That Jesus is actually superior to Elijah and Moses. But you see, Peter's framework of thinking sets him on the same playing field. He's still seeing Jesus kind of like the great lawgiver or the great prophet. He's one of those. Peter should know by now he's dealing with something more than, someone more than. But he's riddled with fear. He's babbling whatever pops into his head. And let's build a house, a shelter, a booth. Now, these booths were common in Jewish history and tradition. There was a feast of booths. They'd go up to Jerusalem and make these small dwelling places all over as they celebrated God's provision. And they celebrated God in the holy city. Well, you can imagine all these families coming from afar to the holy city to build booths. They're not bringing giant reams of fabric and leather to make sealed off actual dwelling place kind of tents, okay? So maybe some did who lived closer or had more money. But by and large, these booths were just woven together sticks, stick forts. They made really cool stick forts. I have several of those in my backyard. So here he is. Guys, I got, uh, I got an idea. Let's, you need a stick fort. Let's build stick forts for you. Uh, each glowing spiritual dude gets his own stick fort. Huh? And you can just imagine Jesus saying, yes. Thank you, Peter. I am so glad you have finally understood I came here so you could build me a stick fort. Whew. That's fantastic. In all serious though, seriousness, though, I think that we're like Peter in this scene. Sure, Peter's all spun out and saying ridiculous things, but I think, 
I think that it's because he is an experiencing an outpouring of divine grace that's so profound he literally can't understand it. Why? Maybe it's because he simply can't conceive of such an exchange. Here is Jesus saying, behold me, gaze upon me, turn your face toward me. I give to you abundantly and freely. And like you and me, when we receive a free gift, we get all awkward. We say, oh, you shouldn't have. You shouldn't have done, or oh, let me make it up to you. It's just in our nature. It's innate. We just immediately say, oh, that, that, you shouldn't have done that. That's, that's Peter, isn't it? Oh, you're giving, oh, let, let me do something for you. I'll, I'll build you a shelter. I'll build you a fort. A gift for me? Uh, good logic says that I need to do something. Neither the mind nor the ego knows how to receive things freely or without logic. It just doesn't get it. Likes to see itself as worthy of something that it has, because it has sacrificed or it has achieved something, something that confirms its value. The mind and the ego cannot accept things as true if they are freely given. Because such gifts say nothing about being superior or strong or moral. I mean, Mark's description of the disciples thus far has not been one of superior intellect or moral cleanness or anything. He's described sinful, broken, foolish guys who are stumbling through this world, and Jesus gives freely to them, and they don't know how to handle it. Peter, James, and John are given the opportunity to gaze upon the uncreated light of divinity, and it buckles them in sheer terror. It would for me as well. I suspect it might for all of us. And I know for a fact that through the church and the discipling of all of us, as we disciple one another and we sharpen one another and we grow in the understanding and in the life of Jesus, He, through His Holy Spirit, is turning us into the kinds of people who won't buckle and run in sheer terror when we're in his presence. And why would he want to do that? Because he wants to be in our presence forever. I think we're terrified of God often. We like certain friendly images that we have, but when we really look at ourselves before his holiness, it's terrifying. And as if the presence of God's glory in his own incarnate son, shining with the blinding brightness and infinite beauty was not enough, then comes the fullness of God's presence descending upon the earth. That's what happens next. Look in verse 7. Then a cloud appeared and covered them. A cloud appeared and covered them. And a voice from the cloud, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Just imagine this. This is probably not a, it's not a mountain like Mount Hood. Just imagine a very high sloping hill on the northeast side of Galilee. You'd still go there today to where they think the transfiguration may be happening. And you're up on this spot. You can see the lake a couple miles down stretching out all over you. And there, there's this cloud that comes down just out of nowhere. 
I mean, as if what you just saw wasn't enough, now the cloud comes down. And in the Jewish mind, the, the cloud descending upon the earth is very representative of the presence of God himself. Surrounded by this cloud, unable to see or think normally, totally enveloped in the presence of God. And you've been brought up knowing that such a presence is deadly for the human being because of the holiness of God. Hence, the holy of holies. Only the priest can enter. The presence of God is beautiful and glorious and deadly. So you see it and feel in your heart what you must be thinking. Feeling all that emotion. What you just witnessed, now the fullness of God's presence comes and totally blinds you to Jesus, Elijah, and Moses surrounding them, enveloping them. Here you are as a, as a disciple standing in the grass, just watching. They're probably sitting down at this point. You're just sitting down and you're just gasping. You're probably not even breathing, quite frankly. Your face is turning red and purple at this point, and you just can't put words to it. You don't know what you're witnessing. Elijah, Moses, and then your human friend Jesus gets wrapped up in this cloud. You think, you see, you understand this is the presence of God in some way. Jesus shouldn't make it out of that cloud alive, and he does. It's not familiar to our logic or our sense. And this scene is strangely familiar too, isn't it? If you've been here with us through the whole Mark series, you know that we started with a very similar scene. The heavens, Mark said, were torn asunder and the spirit descended like a dove and a voice from the, from the heavens said, Behold, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. That's how the story started. Then the disciples have been rolling with Jesus trying to figure him out and here we are at the top of a giant hill on the shore of Galilee and he says, This is my son and I love him. Listen to him. He's doubling down and re-upping on his revelation. Verse 8, suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except for Jesus. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anybody what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves then, discussing what rising from the dead really meant. And they asked him, why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, to be sure, Elijah does come first, and he restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? I tell you, Elijah has come, and they have done to him everything that they wished, just as it is written about him. This cloud covers all three of them, Elijah, Moses, Jesus. That signal, especially the fact that Jesus survives it, signals that God is endorsing these three. He's endorsing his son, Jesus. Just as Jesus creates all this confusion about really, truly being the Messiah, when he says the Messiah must go to suffer, and they're kind of like, this, is this possibly legitimate? Here comes God saying, oh, it is. I'm endorsing this man. I am confirming that what he has said is true. 
This presence of God is him legitimizing Jesus' presence there and his mission and who he has claimed to be. And notice Moses is the first law giver, isn't he? Moses is endorsing Jesus. He's saying, everything that I had hoped for and looked forward to in the giving of a law is fulfilled and seen here in this man, Jesus. And Elijah, the first of the prophets, he's endorsing Jesus and he's saying, everything that the prophetic tradition was pointing to and hoping to accomplish in God's people is accomplished here in this man, Jesus Christ. And each of these great prophets, like the disciples, they, like the disciples are right here, they've just come out of a time of very significant trial as Jesus blew up what they thought the Messiah was going to be about, their suffering. He takes them up on a hill where they meet with God. Isn't that what Moses did? Great trial and tribulation, he goes up on the mountain to meet with God. Same with Elijah. He goes up on the mountain to meet with God. Here's the disciples. He's going up, they're going up on the mountain, probably not knowing what to expect, and boom, Here's the uncreated light piercing into a disfigured world. Jesus giving a glimpse of a transfigured life. And they're just enwrapped. This picture we see is something you might expect in Revelation. Because God himself is covering over them. There's no need for stick forts or booths or tents. No, this is his presence here in his son. Thus, his instruction is to listen to Jesus. He is legitimate. He's my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. This guy is so worth listening to. And what does Jesus say? He tells him, don't say a word until after the resurrection. Don't tell anybody. <laughs> this line keeps coming up. It's all over the place. Shh, shh. Don't say anything. Well, why here? The big message that Jesus has been trying to get through to his disciples is that the Son of Man, or the human one, must suffer and die. He probably doesn't want the disciples to get the wrong picture of glory. And he certainly doesn't want them spreading that wrong picture. Look, people would be stoked about some guys coming back and saying, I had a huge vision. Oh my goodness, you wouldn't believe what happened. I asked them if they wanted forts. They said no. They were just, it was unbelievable. I couldn't even think straight. People would be stoked to hear about this insane vision, blinding light, Moses and Elijah reappearing. It would have been an amazing thing. But that, if that is the glory of God, and that's how I like to think about it, yeah, you know, light and fantastic, magical, amazing, whoa! That's what I love to think about in terms of glory. People, I think, would be stoked. The disciples would have a message that would sell, and it would be palatable. But for Jesus, in this context, and it's the context you and I live in now, human death and resurrection is just as a part of God's glory as the uncreated light of divinity. Jesus says, you're not going to understand my glory until you've seen me raised from the dead, so just be quiet about it until after that. You hear them with each other. What does he mean by raising from the dead? Mark helps us to see their confusion. Jesus knows they're confused. And he's not cruel toward them or mean. 
He says, this is going to make a lot more sense. You will be able to believe the things I've said a lot more when I genuinely show you resurrection. Here's a little glimpse of it. But don't think that my transfiguration is here to say, yep, yep, this, this makes, now I don't have to think about death. I don't have to think about suffering. I just look at the resurrection. This is it. This is all just kind of whatever. Ugh, I don't want to think about it. This is awesome. No, he says they are bound inseparably. inseparably. God's glory is going to be seen in your suffering for Christ. It's not there's suffering and then there's glory. The suffering is the glory. The suffering, the death to ourselves, the setting of the flesh in the grave and being united in Christ fully is incomprehensible. It's glorious, all of it. And the Father says, listen to Jesus. He is not making this up. He is legitimate. In our church's good tradition, most particularly in the East, there's the school of thought. And I think it makes a very wise observation by seeing that the fires of hell and the light of God's glory are not distinct in essence. Could this be why such terror strikes into the hearts of the disciples? The human being's damnation is his or her own refusal resistance to the beauty of God's glory. That's what Jesus has challenged these disciples. They're resisting it. How could you suffer in it? No, that's not glorious. You turn inward, and then it's mind and ego-driven refusal to open itself before the divine love, which causes divine love to instead look like divine scolding or divine instructions for how to be good enough. But that's not divine love, and that's not an outpouring of grace. That's how the ego and the, and the intellect, the logic, understands God's love. But it's so much more than that. Rather than listening to Jesus, we determine what love is on our own. We like to think we know how it works. Love has its limits, right? And divine love comes with heaps and heaps of clear limits, I will love you if and when you're good, we imagine God saying. We imagine him saying that because that's how we understand love. It's something that comes only to the worthy. It's something that comes only to the achieved, the one who has done what he needs to. But when God calls us up to look into his grace and his world and his kingdom, he calls us up to a cliff's edge. And he bids us to jump into that void of his grace. And we start that free fall. And it feels like a free fall. It's free falling. There's nothing I can grab onto and say, yeah, this, now this is why God loves me. This is what he did for me. And how do you feel in any kind of free fall? The bottom's going to hit at some point, right? There is a limit to God's grace for sure. And I think I'm probably close to it. That's how you feel in a free fall. We're free falling into God's grace. So far beyond anything we can compare it to. There's no brightness like it, if you will. We create these false bottoms to feel more secure on. There, I've tithed enough. I've served enough. I've, I've stopped doing enough of this sin. This helps me feel more worthy. It makes me feel more worthwhile. That makes more sense. 
Meanwhile, the Spirit continues to whisper to us through the word of this gospel. And he says, you still have not gazed upon the true grace and beauty of God. We're still looking inward often at ourselves. and We need to listen to Jesus. This is the Father's instruction to those disciples. Listen to him. You're still terrified of me, God says. And I think he says that to us this morning. Deep down, and it's not because you have truly gazed upon my beauty and my grace, my uncreated light. Come to me and find that grace has no limits. And my love and my life were always a gift to you. Come to me and I will teach you through the long and arduous and difficult process of discipleship what glory really is. Come to me and I will show you that you have nothing to fear in the context of my love for you. He is building us up to become men and women who can stand in the midst of his presence and his uncreated light. And he will make us stand. He's building us into that. Unless we come to believe because of the beauty that surrounds us and fills us, our Christian faith will miss something. I came to believe early on out of nothing more than sheer terror. And so part of my Christian experience and mind was dramatically lost. Unless that loving, gracious beauty and glory of God is part of the reason you want to follow him, you're missing something in the Christian faith. Let's pull out all of the good that does live inside of us. The good Lord will make us masterpieces of splendor and beauty if we let him work freely. There's one final thought to close this morning before we step out into that glorious sunshine. And it, it's nice and warm today. This comes from Tozer. Danny sent it to me. And I thought, I can see why. This really captures the thought well. Here we go. The yearning to know what cannot be known, to comprehend the incomprehensible, to touch and taste the unapproachable, it arises from the image of God and the nature of man. It's deep within you because God breathed his image into your soul. Deep calleth unto deep, and though polluted and landlocked by the mighty disaster we call the fall, the soul senses its origin and longs to return to its source. How can this be realized? The answer of the Bible is simply this, through Jesus Christ our Lord. In Christ and by Christ, God completes, he effects complete self-disclosure. Although he reveals himself not to reason, but to faith and love. God came to us in the incarnation, in Jesus. In atonement, he reconciled us to himself and by faith and love. We enter and lay hold on him. That's beautiful. May you continue learning to live in the uncreated light. Learning to receive his grace, knowing that it doesn't have 
a floor. To step off that cliff's edge into God's grace and know that that free fall, though it's terrifying at first, is what he intended for us to live in true peace, security, safety in him. And all of the suffering that we endure is not for naught. He's raising us. He's eradicating that fear from us so we can be bonded to him. May you continue to learn about him. May you continue to receive his uncreated light. Pray with me. Father, we live in this world disfigured and dismayed. And you were there, Jesus, disfigured and dismayed by the corruption and the death and the hatred and the violence of our world. And yet you show us here on this holy mountain, and we want to come up to the holy mountain with the disciples and behold you. And Father, through your spirit, would you help us to listen to you? Open our ears if they're deaf. Soften our hearts if they're hard. Give us eyes that can see you if we're blinded. Thank you so much for being not just a helper, not just a savior, not just somebody who helps us get from one bad place to a better place. Jesus, you are God. And we stand before you this morning in awe, and we are thankful that you love us. Amen.